0: This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Thank you for setting aside some time to join us today. I am Rasa Fumagalli, your host for today's podcast. And joining us today are Robert Sagrillo and Stephen Shaw. Robert Segrillo is a highly respected professional in the Medicare set-aside arena and was one of the first Medicare set-aside advisors in the country. As an attorney and President Chief Legal Officer of NewQuest, Mr. Segrillo draws on his expertise in public benefits, trust and estate planning, and tax to advise his clients on the best and most cost-effective way to maximize benefits for claimants while minimizing the overall cost and liability of insurance companies and employers. Many of the nation's largest self-insured employers and workers' compensation insurance carriers turn to Mr. Segrillo regularly for consultation. Stephen Shaw is the president of Shaw Legal Solutions, offering his expertise to clients relative to personal injury, insurance bad faith, and Medicare compliance. Since graduating from Seattle University's School of Law in Seattle, he has represented hundreds of individuals and tried many cases in the district and superior courts of Washington State. Shaw has argued before the Washington State Court of Appeals, creating precedent-setting law, and has served in leadership positions and committees with the Washington State Bar Association, Washington State Association for Justice, and the American Association for Justice. Robert, you have been involved in the area of Medicare Secondary Peer Compliance for quite some time. Some say that you are the grandfather of the MSA, although a very young one. How did your journey in this area begin?
1: Well, I have to say I'm not a fan of the moniker grandfather, given that uh, it just means I'm old and I've been doing this for too long. But I I do accept the, uh, I guess, the respect that was intended by the the moniker. Um, How I got involved was purely by accident. Uh, I was working alongside a very smart attorney back in the mid-90s. I don't know that most people have ever even heard his name, Spencer Crona. And Spencer uh, stumbled onto the Medicare Secondary Payer Act in the context of conditional payments and simply asked the question, does the Medicare Secondary Payer Act obligate the parties to allocate or discern or delineate the proceeds in a way to protect um, Medicare from a burden shift in the future. And so that really was kind of the impetus of MSAs and this uh, notion of apportioning settlement proceeds. I happen to be working in that firm. And in the first case that uh, Spencer utilized this concept, to do an allocation, he turned to me as a trust attorney to craft a Medicare set-aside trust. And so that's really how I got involved. And going forward uh, from that date, it became a concern of some of our clients, some of our insurance carriers at the time, that they wanted to ensure that there was not going to be any blowback on them for settling claims that involved or included future medical and wanted some sort of mechanism to delineate what portion of the settlement was for future medical and some mechanism to manage those proceeds. And so that was really the impetus um, and where I got involved.
0: So was this before the Patel memo? I would
1: say it was about 1996 was uh, when that transpired.
0: Okay. So you might, you guys actually might've inspired the time i just saying. <laughs> so Stephen, how about you? How did you get into this area of law? Uh,
2: my pathway was a little more individualistic. I didn't uh, have anybody uh, to be a mentor. Uh, it's great to hear Robert's story. And, and again, let me just say, or let me just begin by saying thank you for um, having us to, to speak today. I, uh, I was a young buck, young attorney, uh, wet behind the ears, green, whatever you want to call it. And had a client who was on social security disability, a young woman who had been on for enough time to be a Medicare beneficiary, been involved in a motor vehicle collision. And I was representing her as the plaintiff's attorney. And and basically had to sit down with, you know, chapter seven of the Medicare Secondary Payer Manual and the statute and just kind of with both hands and both feet try and figure out uh, how is it I pay these folks back and what are they entitled to and and that sort of thing from the claimant's perspective. Well not very long after that case, uh, as I was, uh, perusing our state trial lawyer listserv, email listserv, somebody asked a question that I had, you know, fortuitously come come upon as I was working for this, uh, on this client's case. And so I answered the question and that was a huge mistake because ever since then people think I, I know what I'm talking about with Medicare and, and my hubris wouldn't let me not be that person. So I spent a lot of late nights, uh, perusing through, uh, cases and, and, uh, and materials. I'm sure I, I ran across Robert's materials uh, amongst others that kind of schooled me in Medicare secondary payer. And that was about 2008, 2009. And since then, I've kind of developed a practice around consulting with plaintiff's attorneys, educating them on what their client's obligations are, advising them, especially on some larger cases where there's some serious questions as to whether or not money needs to be sequestered uh, to pay for future care is, is a serious concern and something that they're i think becoming more and more aware of our, i have to say that our when i say our I, I speak of the plaintiff side or the claimant side uh is has been slow to come to the to this knowledge and i think uh kicking and screaming might be a better way to describe it but there is some progress i'm actually glad to be a part of you know the people that are trying to help everyone understand uh, their obligations are under medicare and Hopefully, we all end up a little bit better because of it.
0: Thank you. So now, over the years, there have been a lot of changes with CMS. If we're looking at the past 10 years or so, we've had changes in the conditional payment recovery contractors, the process, the workers' comp review contractors. We've seen the implementation of the SMART Act. We saw CMS's first attempt at formal LMSA regulations in June of 2012. We also saw that uh, they floated some compliance options, but after the industry provided comments, CMS voluntarily withdrew the advanced notice of proposed rulemaking in 2013. 2018, they've started the process again. The most recent um, continuance date now is October, 2021 for this notice of proposed rulemaking. And so, you know, we're gonna look into that in a bit greater detail later on in the podcast. But for now, I would like to hear your thoughts on what do you think are some of the most significant changes that have taken place in the area of MSP over the last 10 years or so? Stephen, let's start with you.
2: Well, the MSPRP, I mean, uh, that's conditional payments and and, uh, side of it. We're focusing more on the MSA side. But I think that, I guess I would say both the MSPRP. And if I can
0: just interject. So the MSPRP is the Medicare Secondary Payer Recovery Portal. It's the web-based version of dealing with conditional payments. So right. please continue.
2: Yes, thank you for clarifying that. So it's, it's created a, a tool, uh, and this was because of a, the implementation of the SMART Act, um, that has made contact with Medicare uh, more streamlined, more direct, more real-time. And that has uh, allowed more plaintiffs' attorneys to, uh, and, and more of it, all stakeholders um, in this question, to access real-time client ledgers. And that for so long, Medicare was just almost, was so frustrating to deal with that it was ignored. You know, you didn't want to wait on, on the, the telephone for five hours to try and figure out what, you know, what you were supposed to pay Medicare or wait weeks and months to get responses, written communications from what used to be the MSPRC. And to have that facility now, to have that, the ability to communicate so directly with Medicare has been huge. And again, mandatory insurer reporting, which probably is uh, even a bigger uh, uh, issue or change. Um, And maybe I'm taking all the ammunition away here for Robert, I I don't mean to do that, but Section 111 reporting has been kind of the genesis of all of these changes uh, and has uh, created, uh, has transformed, I think a former industry and even created new ones in this whole MSP space. Uh, so those have been for me the two. Th- those are the two things that pop in my head when, when I hear that question. What do you think, Robert?
1: I believe that Section 111 reporting, mandatory insurer reporting, is um, the most significant change that we've experienced. Um, I don't disagree that the portal is a huge advancement, but I, I think that for the industry and for the statute, um, and the whole notion that we're it's really a coordination of benefits statute. Section 111 reporting made it work, made it efficient. Historically, you know, from 1980 until the mid-1990s, there was no mechanism. You know, Medicare didn't learn about conditional payments until settlement, and even then, it was a voluntary request by the parties to say, hey, Medicare, how much do we owe for conditional payments? There were a few instances where Medicare was following up with questionnaires. There were a few data exchanges going uh, throughout the country for work comp uh, claims, but it was a very inefficient system. Section 111 came along and really put some teeth into it and made it a system that is rational, reasonable, and makes sense, at least on its face. Not to say that we have a long ways to go to improve the process, but mechanically, I think Section 111 Really turns the, the statute into what it was supposed to be, and that is a mechanism for coordinating benefits, preventing Medicare from making payments when they shouldn't, and facilitating payments uh, when they do.
0: Thank you. So, how do you guys feel about the Smart Act three-year three-year statute implementations? You know, do you see that that has had any significant impact?
1: No, I mean, okay. I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's been utilized. Uh, I don't think it's been pursued, and I know you, Ross, I like to see what's out there in the litigation world and read case law, and I think you would agree there's probably you know, less than a handful of cases out there that even deal with um, MSP compliance in a, in a real way, other than just in a, at an administrative or jurisdictional level. And really, we haven't seen uh, but one or two cases even talk about statutes of limitation uh, I think it's, it's kind of untested water, but I, I think it, it should be something that is tested. If I were practicing law currently, I'd be looking for the case.
0: You know, we really would benefit from some substantive case law, depending upon what the end result would be, to see what is going on with some of these issues, like the statute of limitations. I mean, it has come up in the context of my current employment with Synergy. And that CMS has indicated that they do, do not view that they are bound by this three-year statute of limitations, that the BCRC can, you know, administratively pursue people for as long as they wish. So, I don't know, Stephen, do you have any comments right. about this?
2: Well, you know, it's fascinating to hear that. Uh, and I agree, it would, it would sure would be nice to have some uh, some more guidance on its applicability. I'd like to know what the the, <laughs> the starting the starting gun is. Is it the payment? Is it the... The date the two parties signed the release is, that, you know, there's probably is the date Medicare gets notice. I think there's a lot of different ways you could interpret that. But the one place I'm seeing or I'm using the statute is when I'm getting calls from plaintiffs' attorneys who tell me, and again, I'm getting away from MSAs and more to the conditional payments, is when they say the ledger's wrong, and how do I fix this? And and oftentimes it's wrong to their clients' favor, and they are. You know, hats off to them trying to send Medicare the proper amount of money. And they say, the more I try, the more confusing this gets and the less they want to hear from me. And what do I do? And I go, look, if you've done your due diligence and put Medicare on notice, I think that that's what this statute was built for. You park the money, maybe not in trust, maybe you disperse to the client, or maybe you keep it in trust, but you protect the funds for the statutory period. If Medicare comes a calling, you have the funds to pay them, and if they don't, after the three year uh, you know, statute, I say that uh, the funds are the clients. I've been utilizing the statute, I guess, but in a different manner to just advise uh, plaintiff's attorneys on, on how they can use that to, I guess, interpret how to deal with or the BCRC's inability to kind of clean up uh, erroneous ledgers. That's one place I've used it, yes. So,
0: Perfect. yep. Even though we've seen a lot of changes, and I know that you highlighted some of the more significant ones, just from a personal aspect, the one that I love is, I love the Workers' Comp MSA Reference Guide. You know, it used to be, and I must confess that I had the pleasure of working for Robert Segrillo for many years, but I do recall when we used to submit proposals to CMS for review, we didn't have the reference guide. We actually had Wonder Martell being buddies with different people at the workers' comp review contractors stating, hey, you know, Billy said, this is the magic language we're supposed to use. So I really commend CMS for actually issuing the and updating the workers' comp MSA reference guide because I think for people who are actually submitting, it's very helpful to see what the written policies are or guidelines, whether they really comply with them or not. So, you know, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, We're going to be taking a deeper dive into the liability settlement consulting piece of our webinar. Gentlemen, thank you so much for setting aside some time today to talk to us. And thank you to our audience for setting aside some time to listen to our MSPN podcast. Our next episode is going to focus on annuities, opportunities, and ambiguities, it will be hosted by Jennifer Shamansky, VP of Implementation and Strategy at NewQuest, with guest speakers Jason Lazarus, CEO of Synergy Settlement Services, and Jeff Livingston, Structured Settlement Consultant of the Arcadia Settlement Group. They are going to be discussing the opportunities that utilizing structured settlements bring to both claimants, plaintiffs, and defendants, and talk about what components the parties should focus on when choosing to use these annuities. They are also going to look at the recent change to the Workers' Compensation Medicare Set-Aside Reference Guide regarding seat amount calculations and how that may impact the use of these annuities in a settlement. Thank you, everyone.